0: Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change. Hi everyone, Um, thanks for joining us and welcome to this new episode of the HydroGenerally podcast series brought to you by Innovate UK KTN. Today's podcast is about green hydrogen production and I'm joined by my colleague Simon Buckley who looks after zero emission mobility. Regulars will be used to our introduction information now so I'll try and keep it brief. Uh, but for new listeners, the Hydrogenary podcast series is the voice of the Hydrogen Economy Innovation Network of Innovate UK KTM. We work across the value chain in all sectors, trying to support and increase end-user clean hydrogen uptake. So if you're interested in finding out more, please visit the Innovate UK KTM website through the link in the description, where you'll also find currently available episodes of the podcast, and you can also sign up to receive our regular newsletters. Within hydrogen, really, so far, we've covered the rainbow of colours of hydrogen. We've discussed some of the sectors where it could be used, including aviation, maritime and combustion for transportation. We've covered steam, methane reforming and nuclear hydrogen as current and future ways of producing hydrogen. And today we're continuing on that theme and discussing a way of producing clean hydrogen from renewable energy sources. So as I mentioned, we've got Simon Buckley joining us today for this podcast. Hi, Simon. Um, Could you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your role at KTN? And then if you could introduce today's guest, we'll get started.
1: Yeah, hi, Deborah, it's good to be back on this. I haven't been on one of these for uh, a few episodes now. Um, So yeah, I look after zero emission mobility at Innovate UK KTN. um, And as part of that, hydrogen will play a role in a number of those sectors. Um, My background's in heavy transportation, Um, So, refuse vehicles uh, and 44-tonne trucks. So, today we are joined by Chris Jackson, who is CEO and founder of Proteum, uh, and that's a company that is passionate about producing hydrogen from renewable energy, uh, which is often referred to as green hydrogen. So, thanks very much, Chris, for joining us. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you started Proteum?
2: Sure. Well, thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Simon, for having me. Uh, So, yeah, my name is Christopher Jackson. I'm the CEO and founder of Proteum. Uh, Proteum is a UK-based green hydrogen energy company building dedicated and distributed green hydrogen for predominantly consumer-facing businesses to decarbonize industrial heat and commercial transport. Uh, My story, I guess, is a bit all over the place, or esoteric, I suppose, is a politer way of describing it. Um, came originally from the uh, risk insurance and venture capital world when I first left um, university, did a two-year master's abroad um, in energy, finance, uh, German and economics. Uh, my professor in the first year was a gentleman called Marco dell'Aquila, who fast forward to today is now my chief investment officer at and helped build the business with me. Um, And prior to coming back to the UK and launching Proteum in July 2019, I worked at the World Bank in Washington, D.C. So I did a number of uh, pieces of work, but most famously led their green hydrogen work and authored, or I should say co-authored, their first ever green hydrogen paper, Green Hydrogen in Developing Countries, before coming back to the UK, starting Proteum and for fun starting my own podcast on hydrogen, um, called Everything About Hydrogen, very creatively. And... uh, Eventually became chair of the UK Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association for about a year and a half.
0: Well, Thanks, Chris. Um, that is quite an impressive CV. It uh, sounds like we've made a very good choice of experts to help us on this episode. Um, so, can you explain to us what the difference between green hydrogen and hydrogen produced via a grid connection is?
2: Sure. Uh, and actually, maybe just, you know, I'll pull that, I maybe challenge the premise of the question slightly there too, if I may. So, What we're trying to do by using the moniker of green is try and help the general public and, frankly, consumers, investors and regulators to nuance where we take electricity that comes from a renewable source, be that solar, be that wind, hydropower, geothermal, wave or tidal, and we use that renewable electron, that green electron, to separate water using a technology called an electrolyzer. And a process called electrolysis to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen and of course throughout that process no carbon is used and hence we refer to it as green now many projects and organizations will say that green should only be where you build solar or wind or hydro and connect to electrolyzer and there is no grid but of course there are many areas of the grid and many countries that actually have almost 100 percent renewables or in fact where commercially We might be producing sun or wind in one part of a country and we are then contractually taking that electron and we're then using it for a project elsewhere. And no one questions that a battery electric fleet operator that has a green PPA is green when they buy it from the grid. And so I would challenge that there is necessarily a difference between green hydrogen and grid hydrogen. I think the nuance that you're right is if you don't contract it, and you don't have a fixed supply and you can't say that's the wind farm or that's the solar farm or that's the hydro site that I am using, and I can show that every minute that site was producing, I was also taking that power from the grid, then I think it's absolutely right for you to challenge and say, how can you call yourself green if you're just buying from anyone that's producing? Yeah, that's very interesting nuance. And I
1: guess the low carbon hydrogen standard um, kind of covers that. So if you produce it from good electricity without uh, looking at the different mix of where you're getting it from,
2: then they just have a
1: figure, don't they, um, for that?
2: They do, and the UK, by the way, is a very strange regulatory market for this, Um, because in the UK, the low carbon hydrogen standard only applies to regulations that come through Bayes. So if I want to be eligible for the UK government's contracts for difference mechanism or their electrolytic hydrogen support competition, I have to meet the low carbon hydrogen standard, and that will allow me to qualify if I buy wind or solar or hydro from an existing site and I take it through the grid. If I want to qualify, however, as green hydrogen for a development fuel under the Department for Transport, the renewable transport fuel obligation legislation has a different definition of what is green. And their definition requires you to build additional renewables. That is a renewable asset that did not exist prior to the time at which you designated, you would be using that to create renewable green hydrogen. Um, And this comes back to a principle we'll probably touch on later, but is kind of important. And we think a protein is really important, which is additionality, right? Not just taking the renewables that already exist today, but how do we actually put more renewables on the system? How do we integrate more renewables on the system? and I don't know if we'll talk enough about it, but the UK is actually much more pro-additionality than Europe, and Europe's just removed the requirement for additionality on green hydrogen, where the UK still puts a preference towards additionality, Um, and we can touch on that later, but I think it's important for listeners to understand.
1: Now, that's a really interesting uh, point you've made there. So there's a target to have 10 gigawatt of hydrogen production by 2030. How much green hydrogen can we produce by 2030, do you think?
2: Sure. Um, So 10 gigawatts is always a strange target because gigawatt is not a measurement of energy. It's a measurement of capacity. So, you know, you could have 10 gigawatts and produce running 10% of the time and have theoretically one gigawatt of production equivalent, or you could use it the whole time. So taking that aside for the moment, um, The fact of the matter is that green hydrogen is predominantly being used in applications where it's decarbonizing either industrial heat or transport. When we talk about the UK power system today, the UK power system is relatively small in the context of UK energy. So it roughly is around 20 to 25 percent of all final consumed energy in the UK. The balance is heat and transport. So the scale of demand required is enormous. You know, people will say we've, uh, you know, 10 gigawatts sounds ambitious because they'll think about offshore wind, onshore wind and solar and say in the UK, we've put 40 gigawatts of capacity on over 20 years across three different technologies. How credible is it to do that with hydrogen? One might reply, well, to do that, we've added 20% of the UK power system is now renewable, but power is only 20% of the whole. So, if we're serious about decarbonisation, what that really means is actually a much more fundamental scale up and acceleration of renewables across the space. So, how do we get more renewables into the system? How do we build more offshore wind? How do we build more onshore solar, more onshore wind? We believe that it is very credible. You know there are several government studies and newspaper reports on stranded wind and solar across the UK. There are deep concerns about how offshore wind from Scotland through Scott wind or from Wales. Recently, there was a paper out today from the Welsh Government on grid. How is all that renewable going to be connected? Green hydrogen is one of the few options that allows us in the time frame that we need to decarbonize to actually absorb a huge amount of those green electrons that we have the capacity and capability to build, but we don't have the technical way of connecting to the grid today. So I think the challenges really at this point are more around, How do we get customers and regulators familiar to understand what hydrogen is and what value it can bring to the energy transition? How do we encourage electrolyzers and equipment manufacturers to scale up and to prioritize the UK market? Because we're in a global market. They don't need to sell to the UK. They could go to the US, which has a massive program in place. They could go to Europe. They could go to Asia. They could go to the Middle East. And how do we train the skills in the UK so that we have the right combination of engineers, the right combination of finance people, project managers, policy people, communications, to be able to enable this ecosystem to move forwards? The target is real and deliverable if we want to make it happen. And I personally believe we won't decarbonize and reach our goals if we don't.
0: So you mentioned um, a number of sort of blockers that we can see at the moment that may need to be removed in order to, to get to the where we need to be really in terms of green hydrogen production which is 10 gigawatts and probably beyond um do you see any other sort of key you know if you could sort of ask the government one thing to do to help um what would you ask them to to sort of help out with It, it would it be sort of convening these these group of people to try and come to some sort of consensus um or would it be something something more granular than that
2: Um, So you're probably going to hate me because when I think about policy, I tend to step back a little bit more macro. The fundamental problem we have with the energy transition is that there is a cost associated with the transition that we as a society have not decided how we want to socialize and distribute. And one of the most effective mechanisms for doing this would be to set a flat carbon price across the UK for all end industries that is inescapable backed by a carbon border adjustment price, and to scale it up over time and enshrine it in law with cross-party consensus. You would then have technology neutrality, and we wouldn't get into these debates of do you subsidize battery or do you subsidize heat pumps, do you subsidize carbon capture or do you subsidize hydrogen, because you'd have leveled the playing field. Now the problem with doing that is that you create a huge amount of cost on the end consumer. and. For various reasons, and I'm not debating the pros and cons, we society, from a society perspective, has decided that's not fair. So that leads us to the more direct policy today, which is we don't want to create a level playing field and we're not sure how to distribute those costs. So how do we create enough incentives to help new technologies to overcome some of the market barriers and to get past some of the inherent advantages that the current fossil fuel system already has in place? Things like scale, things like 40 years of innovation, things like extensive training programs, extensive financial market familiarity. So one suggestion we've had for government is to look at things like the grid and to say right now, whether you're battery electric or if you're a green hydrogen or your heat pump, grid is an important part of what we do. And it's important for the UK PLC because we should be encouraging people to put more power on the grid, not to go off the grid. The way we do that though, is actually perverse because we have these things called commodity charges, which are charges that the network has incurred to build the infrastructure that allows the grid to exist. And these are one-off expenses, but we socialize these costs over time. And those are called non-commodity charges or grid fees. What they've done in Germany and in Austria is they've actually waived grid fees for certain technologies. And that can reduce the cost from the power grid by up to a third. And that actually can be the delta on a lot of price support and a lot of commercial business cases for a whole range of net zero technologies. And it aligns with government messaging because government doesn't like long-term price support because it can't budget out for 15 years. It likes one-off payments. And so if I could sit in front of government today and say, how do you do something that's technology neutral, that is no regret, and that is a one-off payment that doesn't commit a long-term liability, they should be making a one-off large payment to the grid operators for these amortized, socialized grid fees and waiving grid fees for a percentage of, or a megawatt capacity amount of green hydrogen, heat pumps and EV charging.
1: Thank you. And so some of those points that you made are interesting and lead to a question about scale. Um, So this is a question that I often get asked um, by transport operators. Are they better to secure green hydrogen from a larger site where they have to transport the hydrogen in, or are they better to produce that locally and um, site or very
2: near their own site? Yeah, great question, Simon. And I think um, it, the challenge here is that the energy industry has communicated the energy transition really badly. Right. We've tried to present to people that we're in a commodity market and that you're going to be able to buy everything really soon and that there's a really clear, transparent price. And you have people like S&P Platt's that have a hydrogen index that I don't know how on earth they do it because it's totally made up. <laughs> um, so, But it creates this impression that there is a, a commodity market for green hydrogen for in, for energy as an energy carrier, and there isn't. How energy transitions start is they start by a value-driven proposition, which starts by specific customers and specific customer contexts. So, if you are haulier looking at how do I go from using diesel HGVs today, it's you shouldn't be thinking about this as where is the you know do I buy big or do I buy small you know who do I do the offtake with. You should be kind of more fundamentally going how does my fleet work today? How many drivers do I have? What routes are they doing? what are the relative trade-offs then of me using a battery electric vehicle which you know is going to you know take more time to charge that potentially means i need more drivers potentially it means i can carry less weight but might be cheaper because there's less moving parts to it the maintenance is lower you know and then with hydrogen you know where are my routes that i'm going to run and once you start thinking from that perspective and going okay these are the longer distance routes that I need, this is the more haulage I need to carry, et cetera, et cetera. Then you start to go, where does the network come? And I think what we've been doing as a business is sitting with audiers and trying to build networks around them and doing this as a partnership and saying, we will build these sites with you. And if it makes sense for us to build a large site and distribute hydrogen from there, we'll do that because we've sat with you, we've understood your use cases and we'll build that out with you. And if actually you need a series of small sites together, We'll do that together. And we've led a consortium along the M4 called High Hall. It covers the length of the M4. And the idea is to expand the number of HGV refueling stations as well as the supply of hydrogen out so that we've got a really exciting network working with initially a dedicated set of customers and bringing in additional hauliers to learn from what we're doing so we can scale that into other areas like the M5, the M6, the M1, the M72.
0: So you mentioned High Hall. Um, and you mentioned the the uh, the want to sort of scale that out to other motorways. Um, are there any other projects that you're working on right now that you would like to tell us a little bit more about?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, for those who or the listeners who don't know very much about Proteum. Um, so we were the UK's second ever green hydrogen company. We are the largest green hydrogen company by people and dedicated resourcing at the moment. Um, and we have quite an extensive portfolio across the UK. Um, two sites are public. One is in southwest uh, Wales in Newport, which is our project with Budweiser, where we're decarbonizing their largest brewery in the UK, taking a billion pints of beer a year and making them all green and zero carbon. And our other large project is in Teesside, which will be the largest permitted green hydrogen site in the UK, hopefully by the end of Q1 2023. It's a up to 68 megawatt green hydrogen production facility located in Teesside. We have two other projects in the northwest, that we're in the process of developing as well. And we have a more extensive portfolio that will be coming afterwards. But from those four projects, we'll be in a position to have significant bodies of green hydrogen along key arterial roads from projects going into construction around 2024. And we've got a second, third and fourth wave of projects that are then providing us with this more holistic distributed network across the UK. And I think this is the message that's really important to convey to Simon's question around hauliers years and do you go big or do you go small? This is going to start through a series of distributed anchor customers. And then as this network starts to evolve around those customers and those needs, and people can see why would I use hydrogen versus battery, when do they complement? when are they you know different, then you'll start to see the cost starting to come through. because for all of these industries, you need to demonstrate the value proposition first, mm-hmm. and then cost will start to come down. But if you don't think that the value proposition is there, it doesn't matter how cheap you make it. If it takes too long to refuel, if um, you can't get enough drivers, if it can't carry the weight you need it to carry, price is not the problem at that point. The problem is that it doesn't fit with the operational model. And that's a much more fundamental question that should be at the heart of all energy transition decisions. How do we make these new technologies work or improve the way that businesses run their energy operations today?
0: Well, thanks, Chris. Um, As usual, we've come to the end of our 20 minutes so fast. Um, I still have 101 questions I'd like to know the answer to. Um, But I'm really looking forward to hearing about the exciting future developments of this area, both from a technical point of view and from a commercial point of view. And I think it's important to point out this is going to be vital to the development of the industry, um, both in the short and the longer term. So thank you so much for joining us, Chris, um, and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. And I'd like to thank you, Simon,
1: for co-hosting. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and a really interesting area. And I have been chatting to Proteum about High Hill quite a bit recently as well. So uh, it's good to get a little bit more information. So thank you, Chris, um, for presenting today and talking about what you're doing. And thanks all for listening. All the links that have been mentioned by ourselves and Chris and the link to the Innovate UK KTM website Have been added to the description and as always don't forget to join the hydrogen economy innovation network or sign up to receive the newsletters and the updates so thanks again for following us and goodbye
0: innovate uk ktn connecting
2: for positive change